This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, absent saints and cruel caretakers. Our parents shape characterization in speculative fiction. So I'm not going to take the full blame for this week um, because this is, again, one of those situations where I was, I was suddenly thinking about something and I mentioned it to Jules and Jules was like, hey, I was thinking about this too, um, as if by some form of osmosis or some kind of some kind of psychic ability that we have between us Um, but uh, essentially this episode um, has come from the fact that I've just finished a book called The 10,000 Doors of January by Alex Harrow uh, which Jules actually recommended a little while ago. It's a really beautiful book so if you haven't read it yet it is worth going to have a look at it. It's um, very literary in the way that it's written but not inaccessible. Very very enjoyable and whilst reading it um, I was really really kind of gripped by the way that the parents and all of the sort of the guardian figures had been written and in particular I was faced with this very weird situation where I understood from an external perspective that what I was seeing was abusive behaviour and we'll go into this in a little bit more detail but essentially I was reading the character of Mr Locke um, who was controlling January the main character Um, and this behaviour was not sort of good behaviour and yet very much like January I wanted to believe that ultimately Mr Locke was good that ultimately he did love her and it could be argued that ultimately he did but kind of on his terms Um, and it really really gripped me and sometimes you read sort of about parental figures who are abusive and you just hate them from the get-go but for me something that was was very powerful was that I could understand why January loved Mr Locke her guardian why she trusted him because at the end I also wanted him to be a good guy ultimately um yeah so yeah I was thinking about all of this it was all swirling around my head and I I was like Jules Jules I've been thinking about this and Jules is like oh yeah well I've been thinking about this and thus this episode was born a collision of thought um and that's that's (laughs) why we're talking about um uh parents today (laughs) yeah um we've obviously touched upon sort of abuse patterns and gaslighting and families before Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly family dynamics it's one of our specialities yes uh, but this week we're looking specifically at parents and how they can shape a character in ways that then follow them through the rest of their lives or their character arcs as the case may be mm-hmm. yeah um, absolutely once again things like childhood sexual abuse is a bit outside of our remit for this podcast yes so we're not going to be going into detail on that sort of thing we're going to be looking at collections of parental type behavior yeah and how they can actually affect and inform a character yeah absolutely um we may be touching on some uh 
I say dark themes, some very serious themes today. Again, we're not going to be going into too much detail about these, but if this is a sensitive topic for you, just be careful of that. Um, so parents shape us in many ways, both intentional via, I'm going to say training and conditioning. Obviously, I mean general parenting, <laughs> not not regimented training like the army or anything. Yeah. Although in some parents' cases, yep. it can be a little like they that. They can, they can. Um, which is uh, you know, obviously that sort of um, early conditioning is a lot of what parenting amounts to. And there's a lot more to it than that, but yeah. a lot of nuance to it. Um but also in ways that are unintentional. And I think there's an argument to be made that the unintentional ways a parent shapes us are often more significant. I agree. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, no matter what a parent does, they are going to, you are going to be affected by the parents that you have um, or the parents that you don't have in some cases. Um, but whilst it's very easy to sort of pick up on the very obvious kind of things, the various obvious choices they've made, there are so many things that are underneath the surface that even your parents might not be conscious of um, in the way that they behave, which has shaped you. And we're going to sort of touch on a few of those things. Of course, there is so much here, so much to talk about. There is no way that we could cover it all. So we're only going to be brushing the very surface level here. Um, so let's sort of throw ourselves into the deep end a little bit. And let's actually start with uh, entirely absent parents. Yeah, this is something we've definitely talked about in terms of children's fiction, both mid-grade and sort of the older junior fiction mm -hmm. under the spectrum, because it is a common trope that the parents have to be removed very early in the story in order for the characters to actually follow their story arcs. Yeah, it's... Because good parents <laughs> don't allow their children to go off and fight demons and things. Yeah, <laughs> good parents are like, um, I'm not sure that you should be the one saving the world. Perhaps we should send someone else. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they often have to sort of be choppy choppy or gotten rid of. This can, you know, and I say choppy choppy. Uh, there are lots of ways that this can happen. Uh, they, the parents could be dead. The parents could just be absent but not dead. Um, let's look at those in a little bit more detail. Um, so, first of all, absent parents shape children simply by not being there. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Whether we like it or not, an awful lot of what goes into make us who we are is down to how much interaction you have with your parents or your parental figure caretakers as you're growing up. Mm -hmm. um, it may be a case that you think that you absolutely hate some sort of characteristic and therefore you go to the nth degree not to acquire it. Or it may just be you get so used to something, it seems normal to you and therefore you take it on. Mm -hmm. And that can be both a good thing and a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. Parents that aren't there, you literally don't have a regular parent figure filling that particular role in your life. Then you're kind of missing a few things, that, which isn't necessarily your own fault. But if you're someone who then doesn't manage to find someone else to fill that role for you... Mm be it a teacher, a librarian, a karate instructor, somebody, mm -hmm. um, then, you know, you're missing a developmental stage, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. There's also, like, obviously a very big emotional side to that as well, you know, because we're, we're talking about development on several levels. Um, you know, it, it 
emotional development is, is as important as intellectual and, and you know all of these other sort of developments that you go through as a child um now i think one of the main reasons actually and sorry i don't really mean it's one of the main reasons but i think a significant reason that absent parents can affect sort of the growth of a child is that they are aware of the fact that parents exist if that makes sense um, parents as a as a general idea is available everywhere so if you're an absent child you will see other people have parents this is just a, a fact of life this is a truth unless you know you're an absent child that has been raised completely on their own just in the middle of a forest in which case i'd be incredibly impressed if they even survived without any other kind of companion it is possible but unlikely um, so you will be aware of the fact that you are missing something. Now, there are lots of ways in which that can then affect the way that you develop and the way that you feel about your parents. It might very well be that you still have very positive feelings regarding your parents. You might very much feel like, oh, they're coming back for me. They love me. It makes me think of Annie from the musical Annie, where, you know, it starts off and she's singing about her parents and how they're probably nice, but maybe they're a bit strict. They only made one mistake and that was leaving her, but they're going to come back for her soon kind of thing. Um, and then there might be very mixed in with that there might also be resentment which is actually very common even if you have a very or even if you had a very loving relationship with your parents and of course also depending at what stage the parents disappeared um you're going to have a different sort of form of attachment and all of that is going to shape the person that you become so let's let's have a look at stories where the parent has died at the beginning um, or shortly after the beginning of the story. So a uh, good example of this are our, our regular fallback, um, Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, Harry doesn't have his parents at all. They die before he's, you know, die when he's a baby. He does not remember them. Um, we're told that they die um, and his only he grows up only with his aunt and uncle and the idea of his parents. Um, as such, his attachment to his parents is very positive, I think, in some ways, um, but unrealistic. Uh, because all he has is he has this abusive household that he's being brought up in. And the dream of something better. Um, so he has focused all of these ideas of how great his parents actually were how great his parents would have been, how much they loved him because they didn't want to let him go as a kind of coping mechanism for what happens. And this ultimately means that when he's faced with the truth that his parents were just people and that his father was a bit of a bully and things like that, he, he actually really struggles with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's that's a tricky one because we, when you first see him in the first book, um, you know, the Dursleys are very keen on Harry knowing that his parents got themselves killed through their own stupid accident, actions in a car accident, etc. Yeah. And that he was lucky to have been taken in, etc., etc. I mean, it, that's an, another section of this entire podcast, which we'll get to. But Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, and then finding out that they were kind of this great witch wizarding type hero pair mm-hmm. um, changed things for him. What's interesting about Harry and Annie actually is the fact that they come from the assumption that well, life is pretty miserable, but their parents would have loved them and would have been good people. Yeah, which is by no means a safe assumption when it comes to parents. Yeah, at all. Um, it's understandable if you're sort of in a, an unpleasant home life situation that you would that if you would add that that way inclined you would definitely reach for something slightly better but yeah it, it uh, it's, i just find it an interesting assumption that you'd be any better off with parents particularly in annie's case when someone's clearly dumped her in an orphanage yeah it's the thing with Annie is it's actually quite interesting because at one point her real parents, they're not actually, they're people in disguise, do arrive. Um, now, it could be argued that she doesn't connect with them because they're not actually her real parents. But for me, there's something much bigger going on here, which is that her supposed parents arrive. They're actually very sweet to her. They love her. They, they Well, they appear to love her. They give her the locket. They're, they're just very attached to her. And she doesn't look happy with it. She looks sort of resigned, like, oh, this is exactly what I've been waiting for. But ultimately, she doesn't look happy. She hasn't connected with these people. And for me, that's really, really important, because what happens is that Annie spends her entire life, up until this point, dreaming of these parents. She speculates about what they're about, but she's attached to them. She's attached to this idea. And she's also attached to this kind of concept inside of her, which is that the moment her parents are there, everything's just going to click back into place. And her parents are there and she looks at them and they're strangers. Um, yeah. And in the end, they are actually strangers. But I'm just going to put that to the side because, and, and let's say in that moment, they are her real parents. That's what she believes. That's what everyone else believes. Um, and that thing that she was longing for isn't there because she doesn't have these attachments to these people because all of that was in her imagination. And suddenly they are real. They're real human beings. And there's kind of... There's a safety in being able to imagine the perfect parents and to imagine that they love you and to imagine that they're brilliant um, and to hold on to that. It's quite a comforting thing. Um, this is not me saying, therefore, it's better not to have parents at all. Um, but, they, you know, it's a form of self-comfort. Um, and to discover the alternative or to be faced with reality can be very jarring um, and quite awful in a lot of ways yeah um i can't remember whether annie's original parents were actually dead or not they were yeah they had died in a car crash which is why they hadn't yeah and it's kind of like it's the only acceptable reason in you know broad childhood terms for you to end up in an orphanage yeah if you think about it that your parents quite literally cannot come back and get you yeah um so it's kind of like obviously Harry Potter his parents are gone they're dead they can't come back for him um the nine lives of christopher chant by diana wynne jones mm-hmm. um obviously he will become the crestomancy the person who can walk between the nine worlds but christopher chant and his older sister gwendolyn their parents die very early in the book quite brutally in a boating accident <laughs> ah yes the uh, the the good old boating accident <laughs> yeah and the pair of them are sent off to live with um, with with the basically someone who turns out to be like the old Christomancy mm. and 
Christopher is kind of he he was quite a a quiet introspective person before that but now he becomes quite cool and withdrawn with it mm-hmm. because the the person they go and live with isn't really used to children and you know there's a there's quite a lot of strictness doesn't really t- talk to them as though they're people mm-hmm. doesn't really have an understanding um Gwendolyn goes the other way and becomes basically a little psychopath in the sense of you know she's quite merrily taking her brother's life you know he has nine lives she's taking his lives away in order to be able to do magic um and okay that doesn't go into an awful lot of detail but there's that whole sort of yeah losing your parents at this stage in your development can really alter the person you're going to turn into yeah it probably pushed Gwendolyn far more down the oh I'm, I actually don't care about anyone path mm-hmm. and Christopher down the I cannot care about anyone in path because I need to keep distance so that people can't be taken from me yeah um so that's always been interesting I think also parents that are absent but probably not dead can give you more character turmoil potentially yeah um before we get onto the sort of the absent parent there is another example of the dead parent that I want to <laughs> the dead parent sorry this sounds so blithe <laughs> oh yes um which is actually I wanted to talk about Steven Universe um because Steven Universe has got a really really good and a very interesting example of this where he has lost his mother Rose Quartz before he basically when he was born she gave her life so that he could live and he starts off with everybody, everybody loves Rose Quartz. And he's desperate for this connection with his mother. Um, and as the series progresses, he comes to know who his mother was more and more and more. And he discovers that she was not this paragon of goodness. Um, she was a very selfish, manipulative person who ultimately did love him and ultimately did love his mother, but who lied about everything, who manipulated people, who forced them into certain situations. You know, she forced uh, Pearl to keep the truth so that she could never reveal things um, and caused all of this horror and then just disappeared. She just sort of, she, she died. Um, and so, and and leaves a big mess for Stephen to actually have to kind of pick up the pieces, and this results in a humongous amount of trauma for him. Um, and he does have a father, and we'll, we'll talk about that because his father falls into a you know a bit more of the sort of the neglect neglectful parent sort of um, uh, subtitle, which we'll talk about when we get to that. Um, but for me, it was really, really interesting because once again, we have this idea of Stephen loves a an idea of his mother. He loves this memory. He loves all of the good things that people have to say. And that's a reality of death is that very often when someone, someone has died, people only want to talk about the good things. Um, and sometimes they exaggerate those good things. And sometimes feelings can make you exaggerate those good things. So it's not, you know, necessarily purposefully manipulative or things like that but you know the reality of the person kind of gets buried and yeah it, it, it for me it was very very interesting because Stephen goes from grieving this person that he didn't know to actually being in even more pain because he now has to grieve somebody that he's come to know and doesn't actually really like but they're still his mother. And now he has to grieve not only the loss of a mother that he doesn't like, but also the loss of the person he thought she was. 
And that's profoundly powerful and has a huge effect on him. And I really liked how they they touched on that. You know, this is meant to be for children. Um, And so often in fiction, uh, parents, particularly absent parents, are depicted as wonderful. And it was really, really nice to sort of see. But actually, sometimes your parent can love you with all of their heart, but they might not actually be that wonderful. And death doesn't change that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, there, there are obviously, as we said before, parents who simply abandon their children. Yes. So for whatever, uh, this isn't necessarily always a selfish thing. No. I mean, there's a certain amount of selfishness involved, but sometimes people are ill-equipped to be parents. And it's actually the less selfish thing to recognise that and try and give them um, a good home and a stable home life. But I have to say, generally, people who are adopted um, definitely go through the stage of, well, who am I? What value do I have, etc. Yeah. Um, you know, um, there's a big question mark over their lives. And if we're talking about children who are quite literally abandoned and don't know who they are or where they've come from, mm-hmm. that can be a huge obstacle to get over and can account for sort of strain, you know, some sort of... It, erratic behavior later in their life mm-hmm. um I'm, obviously this series isn't available yet and maybe not until sort of the latter end of next year but um my my character melanie beckett mm-hmm. was found in a cardboard box under a piece of sacking outside a post office when she was about a year old and she says this quite candidly when people ask her and she doesn't have this massive pang about oh well you know i haven't ever really had parents or what have mm-hmm. you um but at the same time, you then look at her behaviour later on without any spoilers and you think that you're still someone who's trying to work out who you are, though, aren't yeah. you? Because of this, this is this is not something that hasn't marked your life at all. Maybe you've decided you don't care out of necessity because if you can't have something, then it's better not to care about having it. That's quite practical. But at the same time, you can't say that it, that this huge absence, this big question mark over who you are yeah hasn't affected your life because i think it's really important to say that having kind of a firm firm roots you know be that in a place but also with certain people does make a big effect on you whether or not you choose to accept those roots or reject them that still gives you a huge sense of identity but you cannot accept or reject something which is which is absent um and I remember the first time I came across a kind of story which was about abandonment. That was Jacqueline Wilson's um, Dustbin Baby. Have you ever? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read it. I've heard of it. Yeah. Um, And it's basically the story of a young girl. It's so long since I've read it. I can't even remember her name, but she's a young girl. And she was abandoned in a a dustbin as a baby, Um, literally just freshly born, um, put sort of among the rubbish and left and she conjures up this entire story about who her mother was and why her mother abandoned her um and it it threads throughout the book um and it's entirely fiction it's entirely fiction within it's metafiction it's a story within a story the main character has created this in order to kind of understand why her mother did it and she also goes through this journey where she's desperately trying to refine she goes back to the dustbin where she was 
um, abandoned. Yeah. Um, because I th- she she's kind of looking for some connection with her mother, thinking that maybe now her mother's older, she will want to know, she will want to reconnect. And spoilers for the book, but when she gets there, she finds a note uh, among the dustbins, which just says um, something like, uh, baby, if you find this, call me, you know, with, with a number. And, you know, she thinks this could be anything, you know, baby, uh, you know, that's just going to be someone... Um, looking for the, you know, like a significant other or it might be a sex thing or things like that. But she gives it a go anyway, she calls. And she she's hoping that it's her mother and it's not her mother. It's actually the man who found her. Ah, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, he found, he found this baby. He was the one who found her. He heard her crying. He was just a young guy who was working in the shop or something or, or the restaurant or something. He found her, he called her in and he's been thinking about her this entire time. Yeah. Um, and there's, I remember as a child feeling the sense of disappointment of, oh, she hasn't connected with her mother. She hasn't had a chance to sit with her mother and for them to sort of make amends. Um, but instead, she has connected with something else. She's discovered that this whole time there has been someone who's been thinking about her. There has been someone who has, you know, every day kind of wondered where she is, where she went. Is she okay? To the extent of actually going again back to the place where she started, her story started, and leaving something for her there on the very off chance she ever came back looking for answers. And I think it's a really, really beautiful story. And as Jacqueline Jacqueline Wilson does, she she touches on some very hard topics. um, And she really does touch particularly on um, the foster care system um, in the UK and what it can do to people, both, you know, the positives that can come out of it, um, and also the negatives. And that sense of not only the sort of the lack of belonging, but if you've been abandoned as a child, and you get put into the foster care system, um, you know, you might find yourself living out of literal bin bags, everything you own in a bin bag, because you don't have a suitcase, um, not really owning anything, being sort of passed around, not really getting to kind of connect with people because you might not stay in the same foster home, you know, all of your life. Um, And again, so many people searching back for answers of who they are or rejecting that because they feel so betrayed by it. Um, So even with these parents who are not there, there is a profound effect in what they've left behind. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, um, our final sort of example for uh, parents who are entirely absent. Sometimes when uh, parents get divorced, one parent loses touch entirely with the children, Mm -hmm. um, which is obviously horrible and it's kind of down on that parent. But again, all these situations are complicated and sometimes it can be a custody issue. Sometimes it can actually just be that that person is, is ill-equipped to be a parent. Um, and it's just, I think it's one of those things where it's very easy to say um, you're better off without them. Although I, I do genuinely believe that in some ways you're better off without a, a certain figure in your life than, than a bad example of that figure. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, if, that gap is then being filled by a series of let's just say you know 
it's most likely that children would go with the mother because women still tend to have custody, mm -hmm. full custody, and unless there's a good reason not to. And then that mother's perhaps not a terribly well-adjusted person and a parade of increasingly ill-adjusted boyfriends moves in through their, the children's lives. And maybe they're not doing anything with the children at all. There's nothing bad, but it's not permanence and it's not stability. Yeah. And then there's the gap of well, my dad's out there somewhere. If I was him, it would be better than here. Yeah. Except the chance, the chances are it wouldn't be because he clearly hasn't cared. He's gone off. He might even have set up a new family with someone else. Um, this isn't me being gendered, by the way. This is just an example. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, again, it always makes me think of the series Sirens, uh, which I've talked about before, uh, where you have the main character who... Has has actually really struggled sort of connecting um, with other people in relationships. In particular, he has sexual difficulties with other with other people because of the trauma of the fact that his father just kind of abandoned his family. Um, yeah. And what happens is that he actually gets a call from his dad, um, and they agree to meet up um, and to talk about things. They're both adults now; they want they want to talk. Um, and he he agrees to, and he takes these steps forward, and he suddenly finds that his relationship is going really, really well. And then he finds out that the girl that he's with actually already has a boyfriend. Um, and he gets obviously very upset, calls his father and says, yeah, okay, let's meet up, but let's wait 13 years like you made me wait. And hangs up yeah. on him. Um, and then later on, he he gets a call to say that his father's died and he gets a call from his father's new wife and he goes to their house and he meets his little brother who he didn't know he had for the first time and his little brother has the same name as him and they had a dog which was the same name as the dog that they had before and it's this really weird situation where his father and his mother we don't know the situation why they got divorced why he left but he basically did a, a second go he retried everything um perhaps because he didn't feel like he did a good job the first time and he wanted to do better the second time um now this is a this is not a good person this is not a good figure at all no not at all um but it was it was very interesting to me and of course it puts him in a very serious situation where he suddenly realizes he missed the chance to connect with a person who he's been so angry with this entire time and that actually he also gets this video which shows that his father did deeply care about him when um you know when they when they lived together when he was there and you kind of get this situ this impression of actually maybe i didn't understand why he left um maybe there was more to it than just him abandoning me uh because there seems to be so much regret there that there might have been something else, there might have been something unspoken. And um, for me, that sort of, that opens up so many possibilities. Was it actually him who wanted to leave? Was he forced out by his wife? You know, was he sort of forbidden from custody? We don't know because none of these things are ever discussed, but it, it's suddenly very, very interesting. 
um, to see that this guy who's clearly had a very upsetting childhood to the extent that it's had a really big effect on him, that can't just have been because his father left. There had to have been long-standing repercussions which really, really caused him difficulties as well. All of these things being linked. And you suddenly get this impression that he didn't understand the whole image of it. He just centred all of his anger and his resentment on his father. Yeah. That's disturbing, though. That's almost like, oh, I'm setting up a franchise. Yeah. Off to the new yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> it is very, very disturbing. It's it's very, very creepy. Um, but, yeah. And what's particularly creepy is that his, his brother had seemed to have a very good relationship with his father. Um, yeah. But his brother really wants to get to know this older guy. And they get on very, very well, you know, the two of them. Um, but yeah. there is this whole sudden, like, why did you get... Why did you get to have this childhood with him? And I didn't. Except, of course, this kid doesn't hasn't had a childhood with him because around the same age that he was when his father left, <laughs> this kid has now lost his father because his father's died. Um, yeah. So it's it's a really interesting dynamic. <laughs> hmm. Okay, um, neglectful parents. Um, so slightly different topic now. Uh, parents are there, they are present, they just don't care. Mm. They're not bothered about a child or a child's needs. Um, and, you know, this is actually a form of child abuse, even in its mildest forms. And even in situations where it's not deliberate, the net result is it's abusive. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if a parent is consumed by work commitments to the to ignoring everything else, or a parent is an addict of some kind, a parent suffers from debilitating depression or some other mental illness, mm. the knock-on effect is unfortunately abuse to that child because of how they treat the child because they neglect it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, as you point out, this isn't always like purposefully vindictive it's the parent could actually really love their child um but for whatever reason is being neglectful to them and neglect comes in all sorts of different forms you know when we think of neglect we think of oh they haven't bought them you know they're not feeding them or they they're not giving them sufficient warmth and actually they're not being washed they're not being washed yeah or adequate housing yeah, all etc. Of these things could be done in fact what happens is that you very often get these narratives where you have like a very rich person who has all of these basic needs met and they have it's total emotional neglect yeah absolutely so you can have someone who is raised in comparative wealth with a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and in theory they can have anything they want as long as what they want isn't their parents approval affection or love yeah which is really fucked up when you think about it. It is. And doesn't tend to make for well-adjusted people. No. Um, Look at our royal family. (laughs) Yes. Um, One example of this, um, we've got a couple of examples of this. Um, One example I wanted to give is actually Fruits Basket. It's a, a manga that I've mentioned before. They did a recent revamp of the anime. Very much worth watching. It's just finished. Um, incredibly beautiful um, story, um, which looks at all sorts of sort of childhood trauma and abuse and neglect um, in a very sensitive way. And 
within the story, you have the main character of Toru, and Toru and her mother were incredibly close. Really, really close. Bordering a little bit on codependency to the extent that when her mother dies, Toru is, like, very, very much struggles to, to sort of to let go of her mother and is actually so desperate to hold on to her mother because she's afraid that if she lets go, if her mother isn't number one constantly in her life, her, her mother will completely disappear and she's too afraid of that. But you find out a little bit about her past because her father died when she was actually very little and her mother was deeply, deeply in love with her father to the extent that when her father died, her mother just became totally unavailable. She All she wanted was to kind of actually just follow her husband into death. And she she just wasn't there. And Toru was so terrified, she actually came to really um, dislike her father. She was very small, so she had very little memories of her father. But she began to to grow these intense feelings of dislike for her father because she felt like her father was trying to steal away her mother. Her father yeah. also had spent a lot of time traveling, so she hadn't seen her father a great deal. So it had been her and her mother, and now she had only her mother, and she felt like her father was stealing her mother away. Um, and so she very purposefully began to change herself to be more like her father. Like she she took on her father spoke in a very particular way. He he used this very, very polite sort of phonetic, um, which Toru sat in front of the mirror and practiced over and over and over again until it became perfect, um, just like her father. And she still speaks like that to this day. Um, and she did it because she was trying to make her mother stay. So she thought, if I'm enough like my father, my mother will stay. And this is a, meant that even when her mother sort of snapped out of it and suddenly went, hold on a second, where's my, what am I doing? I, I need to go, go back to my daughter. Um, Toru never stopped speaking like that. And Toru's whole kind of way has actually very much been defined by this overly polite um, way of speaking and way of handling herself, which was done entirely because she wanted her mother to be present. Um, so you have this very loving relationship between the two, but it was still this, this brief period of emotional neglect has completely shaped Toru for the rest of her life. Yeah, and it can be like mm. that, definitely. Um, in terms of unintentional, but still very, <laughs> very present neglect. Mm. Um, it, I, I'm just thinking I haven't got a single functional set of parents in any of my books. <laughs> this is really bad. Um, but in I Belong to the Earth, um, slight spoilers, guys, if you haven't read it, but um, it has been out for a while. Uh, obviously the father is suffering from a form of PTSD and also has just lost his wife mm -hmm. um, in a car accident. In fact, the, the three girls have obviously lost their mother, so that is that is equally bad. Yeah. Um, but he withdraws. He withdraws into his work and tries to find some meaning in his life through that and essentially leaves his three daughters to fend for themselves. I mean, you know, they have a house and there's food in the cupboards and stuff and there's money, but they're not that they're not like living wild or anything no. but they are not 
you know they're not cared for in the same way it's very noticeable in the way that they they've pretty much between them divvied up things like cooking and housework and stuff which you know for a bunch of teenagers is not you know that might be something that you start to take on more of as a teenager Mm. but you shouldn't necessarily be responsible for running the entire household Um, he's also just as a character is very interesting because he has completely um disconnected from there's obviously this huge rift uh between his eldest daughter and his middle daughter um and his eldest daughter is obviously going through something horrible as well his his two youngest daughters were in the accident that killed his wife and he's not addressing that at all he he has completely he hasn't even considered their pain he just cannot he's he's so focused on on his own pain that he can't even correct his his eldest daughter's very cruel behaviour. Yeah, he has just completely shut off from mm. it. I would also argue that, yes, she's dead by the beginning of the story, but their mother is equally neglectful in the way that she addresses something. She has a condition which means that very soon, she, one way or another, she's going to be she's going to be removed from their lives and she is not giving them the opportunity to come to terms with that so she is just as bad and he is bad in the sense of he does not address that with her because they have their own issues and they they're both locked into this this pattern where they love each other but they can't find their way back to each other and the three girls are just basically getting ignored outside that little circle yeah the thing that really hurts me when i read this book that there's a lot of things which which hit hard about this book for a number of reasons um but it was the fact that when their mother died her secret died with her and their father should have told them because uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to have to uh, spoilers here. Their mother essentially drove the car with both of her youngest daughters in the car off a cliff. And as far as the you know the daughters are concerned, one thinks, "Oh, you were happy. You wanted to take those two, but I didn't matter." And the other two basically said, "Our mother just tried to kill us, and we don't know why." And we woke up and we're in hospital and she's dead. Yeah. Um, and this could have been cleared up so quickly and so easily where they would have discovered why, why their mother did this, why their mother just suddenly tried to kill them and killed herself just so suddenly and violently, leaving all of them traumatised. And it wasn't. It wasn't addressed. So they all have to carry this absolute trauma of not understanding what happened, why it happened, and having to interpret it incorrectly. Yeah. So um, it, it all it's all very messed up. But none of the abuse in that situation is actually deliberate. No. It's, it's come out of some, yes, some poor choices, but it's actually come out of, of problems that adults have and, and do and will face. Mm. Um, that That's no comfort to the three children who should have been like the priority in that situation. Yeah. Um, another neglectful parent um, that I want to mention is actually talk about um, Julian from uh, Ten Thousand Doors of January. Yeah. Um, 
again, this is a very strange situation where what happens is essentially Julian uh, Julian has just lost his wife. Um, I'm not going to bother getting into how, (laughs) but he's just lost his wife. Uh, They've been separated. He has this baby girl. Um, and he gets sort of picked up by a powerful benefactor who basically says, I will take care of your daughter and I will pay for you to travel. Um, and in exchange, you will collect things for me because he was a, he's a collector. And so Julian does this. And there's all sorts of danger associated with this. And there's a reason why he's doing it. He's doing it to try and essentially find his wife. Um, um, and in doing so, he leaves his daughter behind. And he does this for a number of reasons which are very legitimate. First of all, it would not have been safe for her to travel with him. Um, It just wouldn't have been safe at all. Not for the two of them, not for the era that they're in, but also because she's young. Um, He leaves her behind and she has stability. She gets to travel. She has a great education. She's cared for. She is actually in a loving environment. But at the same time, she is being manipulated and squeezed and pushed into a box, which has, again, a very profound effect on her in a society which is incredibly racist. um, And she is a person of colour. So, you know, she has all of these, they have all of these things happening and he ultimately is just, he cannot let it go. He cannot just say, no, I'm going to stop traveling. I'm going to take my daughter. I'm going to leave and we will forge a new life for ourselves because he cannot let go of his wife. And in doing so, he ends up abandoning his daughter. He still loves her fiercely. He brings her gifts. He he wants the best for her. Um, he writes you know, he writes to her, but it doesn't change the fact that he he left her and she had to go through some really awful things all on her own. Um, and she has to live basically with this sense of abandonment, which has a profound effect on her because basically she she finds herself in a situation where she, where she basically feels that anyone who loves you will eventually just leave you. And that is, that's a fundamental truth, which is just inside of her, which actually makes it very difficult for her to kind of form other relationships. Yeah, definitely. Um, That's something that in forthcoming books, Amy's going to be having difficulty with after the whole, because I never really address in the Unveiled series how the accident and everything affects Amy. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't react in the way that M does or Grace does. And then sort of in Harker and Blackthorn, you find out actually it has cast a long shadow over her life. It's just, it's done it in a more subtle way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it, that's the thing, is that this is where we get to sort of the, indivis- the indivisible, the invisible currents, <laughs> um, which is that whenever we read books or see things, we, we tend to see the loud reactions. We see the violent or the deeply kind of visceral reactions. And we don't think about the long-term reactions of, of very, very small things. And um, again, it's abandonment on any level or neglect on any level will have incredible um, effects on you. But they are some of them are actually subtle. And you might not even connect those things. Um, for instance, okay, so this is not so much about neglect, but sort of about uh, d- 
let's use religion. Let's use religion as a um, as an example. If you say, let's say you had a grandmother who was incredibly religious, incredibly religious, and your mother then totally um, rejected that on every level and moved away from that as a you know as a response to that it might have also been a, a move away from culture or upbringing or or it might have been a total I'm gonna go off in the completely opposite direction and have a you know um, and and go and have wild sex or, or be irresponsible or or, or actually just you know I'm, I'm gonna go I'm gonna join a cult or you know something like that these are extreme examples um or it might have been small particular small things as a grandchild that is still going to affect you all of that is all mixed into the way that you were raised and the way that you see the world and the way that you react to certain things it might be with fear it might be with you know uh, a sort of subtle longing. You might feel disconnected. You might feel like you're always doing something very wrong, um, etc. And so it can be incredibly subtle and you might not actually know the origin of it. And this is, again, another interesting thing is that we can inherit our parents' trauma. And the worst part about that is that we don't know what's caused that trauma. We don't know the source of it because it's not ours, but we've inherited it. Um, so it can have a profound and very long effect. So neglect is going to be another one which will last and not just in your life, but in the lives of the other people around you. Yeah, definitely. Um, a different type of neglectful parent, which is one that I often see depicted in fiction as being a bit a bit more played for laughs, a bit more sort of like, well, it's not really okay, but, you know, honestly, this person doesn't really mean any harm. And I actually find it a much more insidious form of abuse. Mm -hmm. And that is the parent who is still very childlike themselves. And the child in that scenario is then forced to grow up very, very quickly in order to res res to, to basically take on the parental duties, which the parent is shirking. Mm -hmm. um, so it forces the child into the role of caretaker. So whenever, this is in real life or in fiction, whenever someone says, oh, my mum, my dad, etc., is my best friend, if I don't get extra context, that gives me a knee-jerk negative reaction because they should not be your best friend first and foremost. They should be your mum or dad first and foremost and then a friend sort of third on the list after that. And I think it's, you know, it's basically a really unhealthy dynamic. Now, whether our listeners like Twilight or dislike Twilight or and whatever, I don't care because this is a really, really good example. In um, Midnight Sun, which is basically Twilight from Edward's perspective, you get to see that, you know, even though Bella won't badmouth her mum herself, mm -hmm. Edward actually notices quite a lot of things like the fact that Bella clearly has had has felt through her life that she had to earn her place because her mother wanted to travel a lot. There were things like Bella really wanted a dog as a child and her mother said that she was allergic so she couldn't have one. And Bella finally worked out the fact that actually what it was was that her mother didn't want anything tying her down to one place. Mm -hmm. And it was like every weekend they were packing up and going off and travelling to see something or do something. Um, and her 
you know, she obviously loves her mother, mm-hmm. but her mother is erratic. Her mother is not a good parent. Her mother puts her own wants and needs first. It's really noticeable that, you know, Edward sort of says, well, describe your home back back in Arizona for me. And Bella was sort of like, well, if you're talking about my bedroom now, I think it's probably a yoga studio or something. And he said, well, what happens if you decide to go home? I said, well, we'll find a way to wedge a bed in somewhere or I'll sleep on the couch. And it's like the minute Bella's out of the house, her mother's kind of like, well, I've got an extra room. I'm going to turn it into a place for one of my hobbies. And, you know, there's already a room in the house that her mother is doing that in. You know, she has her own craft room and things like that. So her mother is actually incredibly selfish Mm. and, yeah, absolutely loves her daughter and everything, but does not put her daughter's needs first. So all her, her formative years, all the way up to being sort of 17, she's been the one running the household making sure bills get paid, making sure there's food in, etc. She hasn't ever had a chance to be a child. Yeah. And I actually do genuinely think that is a form of abuse. I I agree. Um, it's incredibly sad because, again, we have a situation where two people love each other, but y- you do see it very often of like, oh, you're such a good child. You, you know, um, oh, you do so much for us. What would I do without you? Um and this is something I think also needs to be addressed, is that sometimes a parent can be in a situation which means that they cannot help the fact that their child has had to end up growing up or taking on responsibilities. Um, so yes. this is not something which is done on purpose. So in the case of Bella's mother, that's that's selfishness. She's selfish. She clearly, you know, wasn't actually ready to to be a mother. She wasn't she wasn't ready to actually be a caregiver um, and that actually it would have been a lot more, it made, would have made a lot more sense if Bella had gone to live with her father who had a stable life, a stable job. Yeah. Um, and that this has happened much earlier. Um, but caregivers, care, you know, people who have parents who are terminally, uh, terminally ill or who are disabled um, or who are going through... Um, an illness at any time or people who have parents who have to work full-time just in order to get food onto the table and they also have younger siblings might be in a situation where they have to take care of other people or that they might actually have to work to bring in bills as well and this can happen you know it can be that if you are someone who you know is is a carer you might have to um physically take care of a parent or someone younger than you um and again this is not out of a lack of love and i hesitate to call that neglect uh, because that sounds like it's on purpose and i don't think it is and this is not me saying if you're disabled you shouldn't be having children i i don't think that at all um and i don't think from a from my own perspective I went through my exams with a mother who became very, very ill. Um, And I then went on through my studies with a mother who became terminally ill. And from my own personal perspective, that did have a huge, very, very profound effect on me um, because of an emotional one, because I needed to be um, supportive of that and I needed to hide fears and put 
certain things to the side in order to kind of support things and to and to be there and to I was not a full-time carer. I did not have to be that. I was very fortunate in that we had the resources that meant that um, my mother could have excellent care and I had a father who gave up so much in order to also provide that care. But there was an emotional side to that as well. And that has had an effect on me. Um, And that had an effect on me from the age of, you know, uh, 15 onwards. Um, And that's just something small. That's something small. So people who are having to completely take care of a parent or people who are having to completely take care of a sibling, um, again, you would put it within that category of some kind of neglect or something has been lost or taken away. But it's not necessarily on purpose. It's not evil. It's sometimes just a reality of life, but it does have an effect on the people who have to go through that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And as you say, there is a definite difference between someone who just isn't thinking and is being selfish, Mm -hmm. who is benefiting from their child's abnormal developmental maturity from an early age without ever questioning where that's come from. And someone who suddenly finds himself in a state where you're the able-bodied person in the house. I'm really sorry I need you to do this. Yeah. I mean, that's a completely different scenario. It is. Um, I would also, uh, and finishing up the neglectful parents side of things, um, I'd also include parents who do not set healthy boundaries for their children. Mm. Because that that's what I was talking about. Yes, you may end up being great friends with your parents, but they ought to be a parent first because that's what you need as a child. Yeah. So allowing you to do whatever you want is actually a form of neglect. Mm -hmm. Allowing you to, I mean, overfeeding you just to keep you quiet is actually a form of neglect. That's really, really bad. It doesn't teach you a good relationship with food. No. Um, So all of those things are really bad as well. And it, it always amazes me with Harry Potter that it rarely gets picked up on until people read the last book that the Dursleys are actually being as abusive to Dudley as they are to Harry, just in a completely different way. Yeah. They they, they are. They basically just, they ply him with food and with things um, and they don't give him healthy boundaries at all um, on any level. They, they also don't give him healthy boundaries in actually how he treats other people as well. Um, he, he lives by example of what his parents do, and he, he doesn't actually get what he needs from his parents. Um, particularly his father is not good, but his mother is an enabler of his father's, you know, um, of, his mother's, of his father's abuses, and is a, is a big part of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's the whole being almost tacitly encouraged to take up a career of bullying his younger cousin, for mm-hmm. example, um, because both the Dursleys are kind of keeping Harry very much on the outskirts of the family. The entire situation is toxic. So um, any idea that someone thought, yeah, that's better than an orphanage is is like, is it though? Really? <laughs> I mean, it's all part of Dumbledore's great plan, and you can argue in that in that respect that perhaps Dumbledore is not not the best parental figure either, in terms of the child's well being. Oh, dearie me. Um, 
Okay, uh, let's move on to selfish and narcissistic parents. Yeah. Uh, so again, we've touched on this a little bit already, you know, with Bella's mum, but this is a parent who does not put their child first. Um, instead, it's a more toxic form of role reversal with the child becoming, in, becoming an accessory to the parent's ego and self-image. Yeah, um, someone who does this really well is Stephen King. Now, when we say he um, does this really well, we mean in fiction. We're not. We're not. In fiction, we're not, not in real making, life. Not real life. <laughs> we're not making assessments about um, Stephen King's ability as a parent. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else saw the. Uh, it's very nineties now, by the way. Um, sort of late nineties, early two thousands miniseries Rose Red about the haunted house, and it's kind of loosely based on the Winchester Mansion. And, you know, which is supposed to be a very cursed house. Mm. We'll have to talk about cursed houses at some point. Anyway, there is a mother-son dynamic in that that is very, very toxic, where the mother is just in the old expression of keeping him tied to her apron strings. And he's kind of forced into the... He's forced into the role of permanent child while also being the permanent caretaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and this echoes something that happens in It as well, where you've got Eddie Kasprak's mother, um, who is convinced that Eddie is sick and is convincing Eddie he's sick in, in sort of Munchausen via proxy syndrome before it was even considered anything like. Yeah. Before it was even really properly heard of. Um, the, and the latest thing is I've just seen Castle Rock season two and um, it sort of looks at the origins of Annie Wilkes, the character, the main character from Misery, mm-hmm. who, you know, the main antagonist from Misery, and her very toxic mother-daughter relationship with her, both with her own parents and with her daughter, inverted commas. And again, it is that sort of, look, I will control everything about you and keep you exactly the same because that makes you an anchor in my life. I'm not prepared to let you go. And it is treating a child like an accessory rather than a person in their own right. Yeah. Um, and then my other example would be October Day in Shauna Maguire's October Day series. Her mother, Amandine, is a full-blooded fae who decided to have a child with a mortal man because she thought a mortal child would be, you know, sweet and soft and pretty and wouldn't grow up to cause her any real trouble. Mm -hmm. And she actually messes around with October, the balance of her blood, and makes her very, very weak for a changeling and and things. And it's, um, she is absolutely 100% toxic all the way through. And I know Shannon Maguire has kind of said, well, I am working on writing a parent-child relationship that is actually healthy in my fiction. I know so far they've all been really, really bad. (laughs) But I was clearly getting some stuff out of my system there. But she was like, yeah, some of that has come from personal experience. You know, um, I I know she lives with her mother now and, you you know, she looks after her mother, etc. But it's it's also this, this idea of, no, growing up with someone who is like this, who kind of thought of me as more of an accessory and my other siblings as well laid us open to all sorts of harm as children yeah so so yeah this this type of narcissism it may not even be your typical i'm i'm the greatest i'm self-obsessed narcissism but Mm. it's not good for a child yeah um another good example of this and uh, you know we talked about Ten Thousand days of january we talked about julian um i want to talk about mr Locke. yeah uh so this is the the guy who basically takes in 
January and raises her. And I'm going to put this out. I really do genuinely think he loves January. But I think that he loves her very much as a second to the fact that she's another item in his collection. Yeah, um, he treats her almost like an exotic pet. Yes. Um, and he is protective of her um, in some regards. And again, I do think he loves her, but under his conditions, under his terms, he wanted a child, but was very afraid of fathering his own child for the simple fact that, spoilers, he has a type of power and he was very, very afraid that if he had a child, this child might also have this power and challenge him. So he wants yeah. an heir. He wants a child. He wants someone to be with. Um, but he doesn't want to be challenged. And he, so he has January, who he moulds into being this perfectly well-behaved young girl. Um, of course, that doesn't really turn out exactly as it's supposed to for him. But it's it's a really, really interesting dynamic because, um, and I really like the way it's written, because we can see that from an outside perspective that this, that's what he's doing. That he is controlling her, that he is manipulating her, that he is using her for his own gains. Um, in some ways to look like, look what I've done, what a charitable person I am. And also, look what I've acquired, I have something rare. And there are times where he even lies to other people. Um, you know, they'll say, oh, where is she from? And at, at, at first glance, it looks like he is protecting her. So for instance, at one point they go into a shop and this woman sort of looks at January and she goes, you know, this is again, this is set in sort of the early uh, 1900s. They're in America, highly racist uh, period and January is a person of color. Um, so, you know, she, she, they, are, they end up in London and the shopkeeper is looking very suspiciously at uh, January and Mr. Locke takes January's hand and says she is my daughter adopted of course you are looking at the last of a of, of a of a line of royals from Hawaii and at first it looks like he's basically saying she's she's more important than you she's um treat her with respect kind of thing and and it's this, this sort of comforting feel that he's claimed her he said not only have i claimed her she's a royal don't you know um don't look down your nose at her but actually when you finally get the full context of the story you also get the sense that he's like i can't tell you how precious she really is so i've got to make up a lie by proxy to show you what i've acquired so that you can see her value because it reflects on me not on her yeah um, yeah, and it is. It's very, very interesting. It's very, very well written. Yeah, and I mean, and weirdly, this is the, the least harmful form of narcissism <laughs> in terms of, of you know, um, narcissistic or selfish parenting. Um, you can have the kind where the parent is actively malevolent towards the child's needs and enjoys having a weaker, dependent person to gaslight and twist. So yeah. um, I'm not sure Charles Dickens set out to do it quite this way, but Great Expectations, <laughs> where you've got Miss Havisham and... Uh, why is her name gone out of my head? The young girl, Stella. Stella. Estelle. Estelle. Um, who... You know, Miss Havisham was disappointed on her wedding day and has not moved on at all, as in she's still sitting in the wedding dress now. 
And in true Dickensian fashion, the cake has been left to moulder on the table and there are cobwebs everywhere. It's all very, very disturbing. Estelle is a, a, a young girl who was adopted and brought up in that house. Who? Why anyone thought that Miss Havisham was a great parental figure? I've got no idea, but it was Victorian London. <laughs> and she has just twisted Estelle. She's um, She's twisted her to the point where she sets she sets her at um at pip and says break his heart as in you can't trust men you can't trust anyone you can't trust love mm-hmm. and it it almost ends up in ruin for both of them i think she then you know estelle ends up married married off to a man who then physically abuses her because she should not she's been taught not to trust love not to trust anything softer to win at all costs um so yeah that's that's very disturbing and obviously there's tangled as well where mm. you know <laughs> mother gothel has absolutely no interest in rapunzel's well-being really other than what she can what she can get from her yeah absolutely again it's a really interesting situation though because mother gothel is another character i was thinking about when i when i was sort of coming up with how to pitch this episode to Jules. <laughs> um, because Mother Gothel is another character who, from the outside, some people were in divide about whether she actually loved Rapunzel or not. And some people say, we think she loved Rapunzel. They're not excusing her behaviour, but they think she loved Rapunzel. Whereas others say, no, she didn't love Rapunzel at all. She only loved her hair. And there's been this huge divide about it. Um, And I can understand that in the same way that I can understand people who say, oh, um, well, uh, you know, Mr. Locke loved January um, or Mr. Locke didn't love January. And what's really interesting for me is that those who feel like they these characters loved uh, the main character um, are seeing through this character's eyes. Um, and we get to understand how also they were able to be manipulated how or, or why they had so much difficulty tearing away from them january has huge difficulty tearing away from mr Locke because till the very last she is hoping that he's a good guy and she's hoping that yeah. he, he loves her and to the very last we're left with that question about whether he does or he doesn't um and that's never answered and for me that was very satisfying because it for, for me, that properly portrays the difficulty that the January was actually facing. And Mother Gothel, you get more of a sense of she never actually loved Rapunzel. But there's still that kind of open, which is that she might have loved her enough if Rapunzel had always done what she asked. And she did go out of her way to um, keep Rapunzel comfortable when she didn't have to. She could have just kept Rapunzel constantly in a cage. She could have just kept, she could have trodden Rapunzel down, which she did do, but you know, she could have done it worse. She could have just had her in a dungeon. She didn't, she kept her in relative comfort. She went out of her way on long trips to get her nice paints and stuff like that. Um, And that's, you know, that's how they get you. That's how these manipulative, narcissistic parents will get you. Um, because again, perhaps there is some kind of love there, um, but they convince you that they're the best thing that you're going to get. They're the best thing that you deserve. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
Basically, if a parent is far more concerned about the optics of a situation, i.e. how does this look to everybody else, mm -hmm. then the child's well-being um, is a toxic situation. And it, I'm afraid every time I see one of the sort of children's beauty pageants aired on television from America, because this, that's not really something we do over here, mm. I'm always incredibly disturbed. Um, and I know that in some places it's legitimately a way to win prize money and then sometimes the girls in question go off to college or whatever once they sort of hit teenage years. Yeah. I just think it's a really, really... The entire thing is really, really toxic. And I think there are an awful lot of parents on that circuit who very much do it because they're living vicariously through their children and the children don't actually want to be there at all. Yeah. I I, need, I mean, I've seen things of, of children who who very much want to be there and the parents are like, we don't really get it, but okay. Um, and then I've seen some, <laughs> you definitely see those children are there because their parents have told them to be there and they don't want yeah. to be there. Um, and that is incredibly toxic. Uh, dressing up children as little dolls is also, you know, is part of that. Now, I'm just going to go ahead here and say that, that I have no objection to parents dressing their children up and to parents choosing nice clothes for their children, particularly if you have little babies, little toddlers and things like that. You know what? You see nice clothes and you think, I'm going to dress my child up in, a ni in some nice clothes. Absolutely fine. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about putting clothes on your child or dressing your child up nicely. I mean using your child as a living doll, as an yeah. accessory. Um, that, for me, is is scary. Yeah, it, it is really, really disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, final item on this particular segment, uh, deliberately deceiving or lying to a child for malicious reasons. So, for example... The child believes they're your child, for instance, and actually you've abducted them from somewhere else and you've fed them this line of bullshit their entire life. That's an extreme example. <laughs> yeah, very particular example there. Uh, but yes, a very, very good example. Uh, telling a child, oh yes, you're my child um, when you've actually abducted them, uh, which is a thing that actually genuinely happens in real life. Uh, is not a particularly healthy thing to do. Now, from a very personal perspective, I'm also of the mind that if you've adopted a child, you should tell them that they're adopted. But yeah. um, that's that's on you. Um, there might be a number of reasons why you don't tell them that. Um, I just personally feel like actually um, it saves a lot of, a world of pain. Um, and that it's better that a person does know and that they should know from the start. But then again, it's up to you. It's up to you how you decide to sort of do your family. But it's definitely something to consider because one main objection that I that I hear people say is that it's essentially uncomfortable for the adoptive parents to do it. Um, there might be other reasons um, which, you know, again, I don't know the situation. Perhaps it really might be better. It might be safer. Um, in which case that's, you know, it's each situation by each situation. But certainly if you've kidnapped a child and you are then telling them that you are their parent, that's um, that's abusive behaviour right there, guys. So, uh... yeah, and there can be other things as well, like um, obviously the telling a child that they're sick when they're not mm -hmm. coaching them in that way. Um, 
you get that you get the drift obviously there are things that you might bend the truth a bit i mean i always think you should be as honest with a child as you can be within the given context of how old they are mm-hmm. so if they're old enough to ask for ask a question they're old enough probably to have some at least of the answer yeah um even if but, it's very simplified know, if it yeah even if it's very simplified um and we're not just talking something as mild as where do babies come from, but <laughs> though my mother, I remember how I was like, well, where do babies like where do babies come from? My mother said I made you, and I was like, that's a good enough. And I just imagined sort of some sort of clay, some some sort of like <laughs> she be, she became a deity. She formed me out of clay and <laughs> breathed life into me. She's like you and your father, you know. I made I made you, um, uh, you you know, you and your fa- my father. Uh, sorry. Your father and I made you together, and I was just like, just you know, like a scene out of Ghost. Um, and I was like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> she wasn't technically lying; she just kept it short and simple. Whereas my questions as a child were, "Dad, is evil real?" <laughs> and then a really, really long discussion about what actually was classified as evil, whether it was real or not. <laughs> How likely it was to turn up wearing a demonic form. My poor father. Honestly, I genuinely look back and think, I've, you were so patient with me. How on earth did you? I don't think he was ever bored, put it that oh, yeah. way. You, you kept him on his toes. Um, anyway, we have run out of time on this section of the episode. So this is a two-parter, guys. Yep. Um, when Jules, we're we going to wrap this one up. Yeah, here? when Jules sent me the, uh, sent me, he's like, okay, we're going to talk about this, and I was just looking at it. I was like, Jules, this, this is going to be two episodes. It's like, we'll see, we'll see. Um, we we were definitely right. It is, it's two episodes. Um, <laughs> uh, but it is a big topic, um, and again, we're only scratching the surface. Um, so you know, get in touch with us. Have you seen any examples? Uh, that we've talked about in fiction have you seen them done well have you seen them done badly let us know remember you can get in touch with us via our facebook tumblr or twitter both individually or through the dissecting dragons pages before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and jules i believe you have one for us yes this is actually quite appropriate to the theme um i've been watching castle rock which is a series on stars play which is you know an addition to uh, Amazon Prime mm-hmm. and it, basically we got it for a little while as a trial ba- so that we could watch the Stephen King stuff on there and Castle <laughs> Rock is Stephen King is an executive produ- producer on the show but clearly the people who did the writing and everything really really love Stephen King <laughs> so you get all your, your typical sort of Stephen King tropes and things as in small town weird stuff happening um, really intense and nuanced interpersonal relationships between people um, overarching stories and things and it, it is incredibly good um, the first season looks at Castle Rock the second season looks at Salem's Lot which is just down the road from Castle Ooh, Rock Salem's Lot <laughs> no vampires but it is it does get pretty squicky um, <laughs> and you know you kind of see characters from King books sort of turning up or mentioned and it's it's incredibly well done and I think what makes it work is the same thing that makes Stephen King's work work, his books work rather, and that is the attention to detail with characterization and interpersonal relationships. Mm. Um, the, you you only get true horror when you really believe the people actually exist, yeah. and that's something that they've managed to pull off here. So, 
Um, if you are in the mood for something like that, I highly recommend giving it a go. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that recommendation. And for now, guys, we say <laughs> thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.